Welcome back to this uh, bonus episode of TF After Dark. Mm. Oh, yeah. Hi, it's me, Riley. I'm recording from the basement, uh, not the studio basement yet, but hopefully that will change soon as we all begin protesting the lockdown together. Um, (laughs) I'm joined uh, by... uh, No, just kidding. Please, for the love of God, stay home. Uh, (laughs) I'm joined by uh, Milo. Hello. Uh, Reopen the bowling alleys. This is worse than Stalin. I also have Hussein with us. Uh, hey, from South London, which is my area of South London is very kind of Soviet anyway, so it might as well. Never disclose your location, Hussein. Rule one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rule one of never disclosing your location club, and Hussein is out of there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, right, also, the rule, Riley. <laughs> we also have Alice. Yes, uh, we do. Is, I, she, is she going to disclose her location? Find out is, in a moment. She is not. No, uh, I am willing for many of you to die of coronavirus for me to go and get my hair done, uh, even though you can't see my hair. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. It's a purely theoretical hairdo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's a purely... That has to be like the Muslim guy uh, women be shopping thing. Is like, uh, my wife goes out to get her hair done. Why? You can't see it. <laughs> yeah. well, he can see it. Like, if they're married... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it'd be great. You also, you could still seems kind of sus to me. Yeah, you, <laughs> need <a> really, <laughs> you need a really, uh, a really powerful beehive if you're going to keep all of it together. Um, and uh, we are also joined by the editor of the Overtake, uh, Robin Vintner. Robin, how's it going? Hey up! That's the most northern greeting that I have. I hope that's suitable. Mm. That's right. Hey up so you indeed. Can, hey up so you can. You can tell. You can tell that we are we have now we have now swiped our authenticity card as we're all authenticrats now because we are going to talk today about something that is let's say it's a topic we've addressed in the past in particular formulations, whether that's about um, talking about blue labor or whether that's talking about um, the somewheres versus anywheres discussion. Or the other various uh, ways that different columnists say, hmm, I talked to someone who promises me they voted Labour and they said Corbyn's going to do gender to Trident. Mm. And so on and so on. Yeah. That caused oh, Beans in- Juice, we're doing an identity politics episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, uh, in an episode that is tentatively titled The Eternal Struggle of Town v. Pronoun, um, we are going to talk about the phenomenon of culture war more broadly. What is it actually? What does it mean? And why is it that why is it summed up in when in Tim Stanley's immortal tweet from 2012? I really do despise the English. You make the effort to wear a bow tie, and you just get laughed at by builders. <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of attitude which gets you arrested just for being English these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I also um, love how close to being like this American life that intro got. We're going to be talking about what it means and how we got here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and one of the reasons I th- that I wanted to speak with Robin today is that the Overtake is a, a publication. It's, it's a news. It's a news publication that's based outside of London that talks about outside of London from outside of London to the entire country. Which for British listeners, you'll know why that's significant. But for American listeners, that's like vanishingly rare. Yeah, it's just uh, a Bath Party uh, newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> so, Robin, go ahead. 
Yeah, I know. We've got well, uh, well for the for the American listeners, um, we've got like an incredibly centralized economy in Britain. So like, you would not like try and do a publication from outside of London. Um, but yeah, we did still. Yes, <laughs> in spite of that. And- the reason that this is significant for, for, the, for trying to think about what culture war is and what culture war means is that, and we'll get into this as we go on, is that because of the nature of Britain, the matter of Britain, um, you, cannot, you cannot escape the fact that most culture war is stoked by columnists who have not left London in years, each of them trying to one-up each other about how the real hardy-handed sons of toil from outside London actually have their identical politics and hate all the other um, effete Londoners who are all also columnists who all live within 10 minutes of one another and also have mm. never left London. Yeah, yeah. You know what the worst thing is actually as well? It's not even London. It's like half of them live in the Southeast. So it's like they live in like, I mean, this is not, this is not to discount or Surrey mm. because they're very, I, you know, I've been to both those places. They're very nice. But they, no, they're they not. Don't even live in <laughs> have to lie on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Like, let's just let's just be fucking frank here. Like, Kent sucks. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like, and but it's like, yeah, half the time they don't even live in London as well. So it's it's like it's even worse than that. I do, I can't really explain why the southeast is worse than London, but mm. well, hey, I absolutely <laughs> can. Go off, um, go off, Kent. As someone who like still lives here and like um, grew up around there, I mean, I I feel like this is the, the southeast is like a commuter is a is a commuter town in the sense that um, at least like where I am and maybe like Alice knows these areas, but like you know, um, mm. and again to disclose, like you know, the Dartford esque area, um, a little, little and, far out for me. I know the little, closer in suburbs. So as someone who comes from the southeast and still like lives around here, basically my take is that. There's nothing good, like the southeast and places like Dartford and stuff is basically like nothing here. Um, the only thing that's like keeping this local economy alive is the fact that like people commute into London for their work job, for, for their jobs, so their like house prices artificially go up. And also you have like the remnants of a grammar school system, which also pushes house prices up. So you basically have like a very dreary place that most people don't actually like living in anyway, like dreary suburbs that have like the worst aspects of London, but also the worst aspects of everywhere else. It's basically mm. like, it's basically a place where you go to sleep and to hang out with kids that you don't like and a wife that like you kind of sort of regret getting married to, but it's a bit yeah. too late. And like the, pay- I mean, like the- where I'm from, which is, is Bromley, there's like exactly that liminal space because it's technically in London, but for aesthetically yes. it's in Kent. Uh, like it's the only borough of London with no tube stations. And, and it's, so it's, it's just this kind of this like leafy suburban place full of like simmering Tory resentment. And it's that simmering Tory resentment that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, because... I know. It was setting you up for a, for a segue <laughs> into the next bit. I actually, I have, I have one, um, I have like one uh, uh, home counties thing to add, which is that I'm from the, uh, the tangentially London bit of Essex. And uh, I think the, mo- the thing that sums it up the most, I think it's exactly the same as the other two, except that I, there was someone I went to primary school with who uh, has started a personal training business, bought a Mercedes and is now a huge Tory. Awesome. But that person is authentically working class, and that's what we want to get into. The, the, the thing that yes. unites all these areas are there's one thing that unites all these areas, and that is uh, Noscas. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you define between the Caliphate of Tower Hamlets and the home counties. <laughs> so, if we are going to talk about 
culture war, which is how which we can see is like how the uh, different uh, different elements of uh, the London and surrounds, to be fair, columnist class look at the rest of the country and import their political values onto it. You also have to understand that this is basically an American phenomenon imported into the country where we've gotten the same moral panics about quote unquote cultural elites uh, and what they're doing, which is largely invented by the right wing press. Uh, which dovetails with the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about cultural Marxism, because it's always about the strange practices of a weak and a feat, the simultaneously very powerful and influential cabal that wants to reshape the nation into something strange and alien for totally unknowable reasons. Yeah, Jer- Jeremy Corbyn may have been a nice jam granddad, but he was making jam for Hamas. Mm. And... This was a, this was actually a conspiracy theory that was very popular about the Frankfurt School, who were a group of uh, German Jewish academics who were looking at like trying to understand why Marxism didn't, why like there was no socialist revolution in Germany, why it went fascist instead, and they mostly worked in the U.S. and they were the subject of a conspiracy theory that is still talked about today by um, uh, uh, Tory MPs and the fucking president. And literally everybody, and it's very, very, very respectable, and it is the, th- and it's very, very, very unfortunate, and it's the thing that informs what a lot of the right wing anxieties that become culture war tropes. Yeah, and, I, and I can't stress enough how much this is an import, right? Like people who get mad at us for being like, "Oh, you only talk about American culture war stuff." I was like, "No, it's like skinny jeans. It gets here <laughs> ten years later, right?" <laughs> People of Britain are too thick for culture war. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, so look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to offer a definition of culture war here because it's not actually written about as a phenomenon uh, altogether that much. It's written, it's written sort of within, as people write, that, you know, um, especially right-wing columnists sort yeah, of panic about... Yeah, snowflakes yeah. are turning your kids gay. Yeah. Mm. It's the immigrants are going to give house prices cancer kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I th- I th- my definition, my working definition, is that culture war can best be understood as the displacement of class-based anxieties onto non-economic phenomena with the specific effect of creating solidarity across classes, like between workers and billionaires, of a preferred identity group forestalling the development of class consciousness. So that's why fascism is so culturally nostalgic, so militantly culturally nostalgic, because it's about identifying new rungs of the preferred segment of the working class on the hierarchy who must be kept in order. So yeah. like you pick yeah. your preferred section of the working class, invent a bunch of rungs below them and then say careful if you don't continue supporting if we if we don't work together, we the ruling class and you like the quote unquote white working class or whatever, then you know that then um uh, society is going to fall yeah. apart. And th- there's also the lib version of this, which is the uh, I want to be the first openly queer Secretary of Defense, right? Uh, <laughs> and, th- and those two are kind of in a, in, a, in a vicious cycle with each other because you can then, like, if liberalism leans very heavily into uh, these, these identities have like a material value that like we should we should lean into that we have this like diversity but only diversity in and of itself that we're going to emphasize that we're going to have like an intersectional department of defense or whatever mm. then it, it sets you up for the opposite the fascist version of oh well you're just like you're doing snowflake shit and the the only real identity is this one that we've also made up of the you know hard-hearted son of toil 
Mm. Listen, Alice, I think we've had quite enough furors, and maybe it's time for a fur-her. <laughs> <laughs> Look, what I'm saying is that this is, like, th- to a certain extent, these are dueling, uh, like, invented identities. And it's not to say that an, an identity being invented makes it a bad thing. Merely that, it's when it's used to elide a, a sort of a class injustice, then you end up with these weird-ass takes like coming out as transgender made me a more effective CIA officer, or you can't expect to win an election if you ever use a pronoun, ever. <laughs> coming out as transgender made me a master of disguise. <laughs> so, that is true. The start of the, of the ongoing, relentless, constant culture war in the UK is often pegged by columnists as the moment in 2008 when Gordon Brown referred to Gillian Duffy as, quote, that bigoted woman. Which just she for was. Saying she was in- yeah, she was. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting is that she's now a full-time media figure. Really? Yeah, she's, she's, she's constantly being interviewed and going on, uh, going on like a, a question time and moral maze and things of that nature. Oh, and she's really? not gone away. Awesome. I've just never seen her on anything, like, yeah, really? at all. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I have absolutely. She was awesome seen her because her whole thing was that she asked a question that was so easily answerable. Her question was, "All these Polish people, where are they coming from?" Poland. <laughs> <laughs> Next, um, right. So, but the what this is, I think, one of the one of the key elements of the culture war. Right. I'm going to throw to Robin here that columnists look at this moment and say, "Ah, that's when it all began. This is when London. They, they think this is when I, the London-based columnist." Lost touch with the uh, with with the traditional hoary, hoary working class oil. racists. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, Robin, what's I want to get sort of I want to pull out kind of what you think about this. Yeah, well, I, so some form of this has like existed since like the dawn of time, um, and I think one the the thing that kind of like I've only just kind of rationalized in my head recently and like worked out is like I grew so I grew up like. Uh, like working class northerner on a council estate and I was probably like a bit different to some of the other people on my estate but there was a lot of people like me as well so like maybe you'd say like uh, I don't want to use like educated because it's not that but it's like maybe a bit more culturally middle class probably um and and it's like I've I've been trying to find my like working class northerness for like my entire life like trying to work out how it fits in and trying to be like who like who am I like I'm not I'm obviously not working class like I had free school meals like I couldn't you know like I couldn't be working class um but like but because the newspapers and because columnists and because all sorts of people think that like working class northerners are this certain way I was like oh I'm not you know I'm not one of them um and actually like I'm entitled to that label as much as anyone else is and actually there's so many of us like you know like the young like um blue-haired working class person is you know like as legitimately a working class person as like a old man that smells of bacon like (laughs) like (laughs) to ward off muslims is is literally and it but it but it's prob it is problematic because it it robs you of your identity like entirely like so it it's so deeply ingrained in all of us and it comes from it doesn't just come from like columnists it doesn't just come from like the way we talk like you know in journalism it comes from 
like the TV that we watch and like, you know, things like the Royal family that like, I really strongly identify with and understand. Um, How it's are you spelling Royal family there. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> The Royal family. Um, yeah. Which, which like, I think a lot of working class northerners know those people and have those people in their family as well. Um, but still it, it, it feels like it's not about me and there's so few like of anything in existence that's, that's about the, this type of working class person so that it just gets perpetuated and then yeah i don't i don't really know where i was going with that but mm. uh, no i i totally get what you mean that like sense of alienation what that was one of the things that always struck me whenever there's like a column that's like oh well, you wouldn't get away with that trans nonsense in wigan i'm like what if you're fucking trans and from wigan how yeah, how yeah. are you going to feel then that's it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's the annoying thing. Like, I know, like, most of the people that I, like, socialize with are working class. And I know, like, a lot of trans people socially um, who are working class who have, like, you know, like, a broad Wakefield accent or whatever, you know, like, and they grew up in, you know, Wakefield or whatever. And it, yeah, and it's like the idea that you could, that if you're working class, you are this, this one person is just absolutely bizarre. Also, just as an aside, it's hilarious to say that, like, oh, you wouldn't get away with being trans in Wigan because my literal favorite, like, good natured joke about being transgender is the one where it's like, oh, I just met a transgender person from, uh, uh, like, I think it's like the Lancashire area. They had a Wigan address. <laughs> that took me a second. Oh my God. <laughs> God damn. The, uh, what, this, what this plays out as, right? Is this plays out as. There is a broad diversity of, uh, of 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 working class of working class people culturally. If you think it's an, an economic category, then of course there's no such thing as as working class culture necessarily. It's just um, it is a relationship with capital, and there is a many many different kinds of identities within it. And so Gillian Jill- Duffy is portrayed as the real British working class who is just uh, dis- who is separated from the British middle class who was portrayed as, let's say, inauthentic. Yeah, but only um, by culture is the thing. Yeah. Like, and only by accent, only by possession of a flat cap and a whippet on a string. Uh, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> and, and, and what I find very interesting, right, is going back to that, uh, that theory of displacement rather than diversion, is that when Gordon Brown called her that bigoted woman, it was 2008, which is when the financial crisis happened. You know, it mm. is the idea that the, the whole... Um, uh, this, the the liberal culture war trope of the working class uh, the, wor- the the working class people who voted for you know these things that they don't like are irredeemably deplorable and racist and so on totally just totally just forgets that you can have lots of anxieties that can be redirected for you and the statement that not all working class people are like this or that um, maybe those anxieties are being redirected by columnists and capital or whatever right yeah. that you are Maybe then not said all that, working oh. class people are white <laughs> yeah you're, well, you're like, then, one of the yeah. things that like uh that sticks with me right is like um the most one of the most abiding liberal stereotypes of the working class is like oh well, they just vote against their economic interests but when the financial crisis happened they had voted in a labor government 
and it had, <laughs> it had roundly failed them. So I don't know, um, you know, what what else they were supposed to do in the eyes of these like, uh, you know, nice nice liberals who like wanted mm. to like who only wanted the best for the the, the poor the poor proletarian. Tony Blair, no less, the best socialist there's ever been. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. If, if they voted for him and then got economically ruined anyway, then where do you get off calling them stupid, right? Well, it's that you get pro, and also it's that you are you are still you are promised something that was going to assuage that anxiety, and then mm. you get you get involved in it. But again, we have to ask, you know, who's doing the promising? Who who benefits? Key bono. Uh, mm. And this, this makes culture war particularly hard to deal with for the left because it's very emotionally captivating and it's always fought on the right's terms because the right just gets to open up new fronts on the culture war because their interest is just making the conversation not economic. Yeah, it's they that's like I, I, I keep coming back to to trans stuff just because that's what I know. But like the the extent to which it is an endless fucking debate that nobody wants, uh, except for like a handful of columnists who just have to keep this debate spinning out longer and longer, and we have to have more reviews and more questions. Mm. Uh, like it's it's so transparently just this kind of serving this distractive function. Uh, yeah. But like, what you've got to do is not do the like class reductionist thing where you're coming to it from the left, where you just say, "Ah, oh, well, that means that none of this stuff is real or matters because there's only class." Uh, and it's like, well, no, it's all real. The problem is that it's being used as a like as a sublimated way of getting you to stop talking about the one thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the gender stuff is an amazing example because like most people would never even think about it if it weren't for like about six columnists because like there are so few trans people yeah, i keep thinking about that one guy caitlin bennett ambushed and she was like well what do you think about putting tampons in the men's bathroom he's like oh no i'm not gonna use one it's like <laughs> well, yeah yeah cool i get yeah. that's that's the debate debate over right <laughs> Dudes yeah, would totally mean? find a use for them, though, like some weird prank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This means, right, that culture war is really hard to deal with for the left because it's very emotionally captivating. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very, and, and, it, and you because it, it takes that anxiety and it puts it somewhere. And it once someone is once someone is now anxiously fighting something, it's very difficult to just tell them to stop. And some people on the left think the solution to this is to just side with the right on the culture war issues. Because you can just win them over on the pure class stuff, right? <laughs> and by winning the class war, you make the culture war not matter. I think this is a like, fundamental. We just need to side with the real working class guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's fundamentally naive because if you accept that culture war is displacement rather than diversion, then accepting a right wing narrative on it because it doesn't matter, quote unquote, it doesn't end that argument and then allow you to move on to economics. It just deepens the commitment to never talking about economics mm -hmm. because it's just like, yeah, if you've agreed to us on this. Now let's open this front. Yeah, and, and, this front uh, and, and also, this front. also, you inadvertently throw all of the people who were like unwillingly fighting those those culture wars under the bus, and they're never going to trust you again. If you if you're mm. just like, oh, well, we don't we don't care about like racial issues or we don't care about gender issues, then good luck getting anybody who is like actively being oppressed on the basis of these to then go, ah, oh, yes, but you do speak a lot of truth about class, even if you're still like technically right, it doesn't matter because you're not like, you're not doing politics, you're just being a dick on a podcast. I think that you're right about like the left being, like this the culture war like issue makes it very difficult I, I feel like the left find it very difficult because um, I mean partly it's because of like, you know, 
there's a contingent of us that want to feel that like class issues should be the way in which we mobilize our politics. And it sort of leads into, uh, I guess the best way to put it is, um, bad faith readings of it kind of being race blind or class blind. I mean, I don't know whether we're going to be talking about like kind of the traps around into like the intersectional traps and how that sort of been like weaponized by corporate and capital and everything. Um, I would just say that like for the right, uh, at least like what they have is like a co- like a cohesive narrative, even if it is one that is like intellectually flawed. It's one where it's like because like the flows of capital and like the economic systems are sort of working in their favor, they can like direct these kind of cultural conversations in a way that is kind of I feel like for lots of like left wing activists and like left wing groups who do feel that like an entirely class based a class based mobilization isn't is isn't necessarily like workable in practice um as much as it is in theory that like there's this like an over there's like an overwhelming sense of like how do we reconcile like a new form of like um understanding uh, i'll take that from the top um i guess there's a i guess there uh, i guess my position you know what fuck it i've i've kind of like lost my thinking i'll come back into it into a second it's like no, we don't we don't expect everybody to be fred hampton right like you don't have right. to like go out and like cross those lines and have meetings with people but yeah. if you can, that's that's like we have the framework of doing that. Intersectionality is as much as we might make fun of some of its weirder offshoots is yeah. absolutely the way of doing that. In which, like, you can you can say, yeah, racism is real, or uh, transphobia is real, or misogyny is real, uh, and the way in which it affects you is like it interacts with capitalist exploitation that's like right. really and, that's, and of course and of course by saying that you are uh, absolutely outing yourself as an aristocrat because of all those yes, words you use yes of course because, <laughs> um, because working class people don't use words like intersectionality and i definitely have a very good faith reason for insisting that this is the case hmm uh so i'm gonna do a little bit more in the background of this then we're gonna go into the sort of real world of britain right so uh oh, this no. is a a passage from the Hoover Institution. If you die written- in Britain, you die in real life. This <laughs> <laughs> is a passage from the Hoover Institution written 20 years ago called Why There is a Culture War that could have been written two days ago. It goes, The slow but steady advance of Gramscian and Hegelian Marxist ideas through the major institutions of American democracy, including co- Congress, the courts, the executive, and the executive branch, suggests there are two different levels of political activity in 21st century America. On the surface, politicians seem increasingly inclined to converge towards the center. Beneath, however, lies a deeper conflict that is ideological in the most profound sense of the term and that will surely continue in decades to come, regardless of who becomes president tomorrow or four or eight or even 20 years from now. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? There that, that is... was, that's the time bomb buried under all centrism. And that's like no one has no lib has ever wanted to acknowledge this of well yeah sure bill clinton will like kick millions of people off of social security it won't matter because they'll still call him a communist yeah and it's not <laughs> just that it's that it's that and no matter how many of their guys they get in you know no matter how many victories uh the right wins mm-hmm. they will no matter how many lifetime judicial appointments they get in the states 
no matter how many it's unelected lords. And it, oh, that's why you keep opening up these new fronts. That's why people who never gave a shit about colleges other than to defund them now care so much about campus free speech because they've won everywhere else. It's why you start caring about trans issues. Uh, it's why like think tanks just start springing up to talk about them. It's why everything is a different debate about a different thing that nobody was prepared for. The riot have finished the main campaign and now they're just doing this shitty side Literally, yes. Literally. <laughs> and specifically, it's it, one of the only ways this works is if you claim to be speaking, if you claim to be speaking to power for advising power, advising one another for people who are silent. It's why it always relies on a silent majority that is against whatever change is happening. Silent majority always be talking. Weird that. It's also why it's it's also why you have these kind of perverse ideas of like incredibly powerful uh like pink-haired campus marxists who all also incidentally just start crying whenever you start talking to them. Indeed. Um, and again, I want to throw back to Robin here, right? Because it's crucial I think as well that these people, the the people for whom on whose behalf culture war is being waged, uh fighting these uh invisible but very powerful uh p- bits of political activity are always outside of uh, of 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 the of the of the metropolitan core, right? Yeah, yeah. And you, the thing, the thing actually that that is from like from the north um, that is frustrating actually is like this in the entire conversation. Ninety percent of the time doesn't involve a single northern person. Like it's literally like um, you know, like you, you'll get like your whatever right wing columnist that's like. Oh, we're, you know, we're talking about the sort of the earth people who've been overlooked for so long. And then, you know, like you'll get a left wing, like guardian columnist or whatever being like, um, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're sort of the earth, but they, um, they've been, how have they been hoodwinked by the right or whatever? And it's like, maybe actually just like fucking spend some time in the north of England and it wouldn't be, none of this shit would be a mystery at all. Um, and like, and that's it. But it's just like, a lot so much like i think people outside of the north underestimate like how much of like the like soft power like um like the soft political power um like the media power all that kind of stuff is like held off like to the point where literally i get more retweets when without having the Yorkshire Post in my... Because I also work part-time at the Yorkshire Post. Like, if I'd, I've taken the Yorkshire Post out of my bio and I get more retweets and more follows because of that. Um, because I think people actually don't want Northern people in the conversation. Um, they like having that... They like having the kind of the clash of the bubbles. Like, that's how they like doing it. They don't actually... Re- oh, I mean, obviously, they don't really care. Like, um, Or at least the right don't really care. Um, because they just want to have, you know, they, it's not it's not actually about the North, obviously. It's not about working class people. It's about whatever the, some shit they're trying to push that week. Um, well, yeah. If, if they actually did speak to someone someone from the North, they might say something that was different. Yeah, well, they uh, keep inventing people from the North to speak to. Yeah. Like, there's this whole genre of tweets from, like, various pundits who are like, I talked to a Northern voter, and then it's just, like, this stream of, like, you know how in the 20s, like, uh, white authors used to write patois? It's kind of like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, I spoke to this accent, and what they told me was, e-bagum. Well, they're all, well, like, well, they're all like, taxi drivers. 
Hmm. The fake taxi driver. <laughs> for, yeah. for, for all taxi drivers telling you to like telling you that like um, Keir Starmer needs fire in his belly or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then, but frequently oh, as well. Yeah. The, uh, North on like a Tuesday afternoon and talk to some people. Like who who's going to be around on a Tuesday afternoon that you're going to talk to? Um, it's not going to be somebody who. Well, Julian Duffy for a kickoff. <laughs> <laughs> It's like no wonder these fucking same people keep cropping up because they're like they're, they don't have anywhere to be, they don't have anything else, and then they're just like those kind of specially handpicked, selected people. Oh, I actually have a theory about this, which is that uh, the reason why they fetishize the North so much is precisely because like people in the commentariat class know so little about it, so there's like far few people who can prove them wrong, especially like Northern voices, because there are so few of those in our media class, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and I think actually this culture war phenomenon is like really a phenomenon of the south uh like uh, we had this discussion when we were talking about guests when riley was like we need someone northern and i was like well in a way we do to prove that like the it's not a northern thing but i think actually most of these people they're really talking to are in the south like the kind of like the guy who owns four buy to let properties but sounds like a guy Ritchie character and therefore he's somehow working class like mm-hmm. what i find more often than not when you speak to northerners you're less likely to encounter like right-wing stereotypes than when you talk to people around where my parents live in essex hmm. yeah. Now, yeah so uh, speaking of imagining the rest of the country this is another um, paragraph in American book, and I use American books on purpose here um, because I because think they're this just is an, our books, but ten years earlier. Yeah, <laughs> this is an American phenomenon, uh, and it is one that has that is deeply related to the Americanization of the UK. So this is from a a, a, parag- a paragraph from Christopher Caldwell's "The Age of Entitlement: America Since the 1960s" about how he left the left and discovered what real America was like. Um, he says, "On the one hand." We activists were angry about the war, racism, and the vicious acts we saw around us. But on the other, we viewed America as one great wasteland, a big, monstrous, mechanized, air-conditioned desert, a place without roots or feeling. We saw the main problem really as the people, the ways that they thought and acted towards each other. We imagined a great American desert populated by millions of similar crass beer-drinking grains of sand living in a wasteland of identical suburban no-places. What did this imagined great pigsty of TV watchers correspond to in real life? As middle-class students, we learned that this was the working class, the racist and sensitive people. What I find interesting thinking about this, about this paragraph is that they never... like The people who, who are the right-wing culture warriors, especially the ones that abandoned the left, they never stop thinking that about what the working class are like. No, they and just still, think they it's have good. Contempt for them. Yeah, they now just think that it's good that they're like this. And they <laughs> feel guilty for having been middle-class earlier and maybe having had the wrong kind of hot drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the, the crass beer-drinking grains of sand are actually on our side, and doesn't that feel good, right? Mm. And so, the, I, I think there's really, the, the culture war is portrayed as, number one, whatever, whatever uh, the right wants it to be, because they could just open up new fronts. Uh, it's portrayed as, as well as, as being broadly one that is highly cynical, and that sort of hates the people it purports to defend. And mm. has contempt for them. Can we can we now talk about North FC memes? Because I've been thinking about <laughs> I posted I posted about these in in the group uh, before we started talking about this episode, and it's just been percolating through all of our brains for the last oh. couple of weeks. It's the it's the only time an American has accurately observed Britain from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're if you're not familiar, the North FC meme is what happens when like. Y- 
Have you ever looked at the photos, like really looked at the photos of an EDL march where there's like twenty guys who all look like uh, like craniometry you know, like a, patch of ri- a pack of Richmond sausages if you dress them up in full. Yeah, trip. like the chud, right? Like the British chud is like it's a real guy. There's probably like twenty of them total in the UK, but like that's what the, the North is. FC memes are. What happens when? American uh, like neats, American eight chan and four chan Nazis who like agree with ninety percent of their politics find them like so physically repulsive that they create this whole class of memes about like sort of sweaty fat rolled guys in football shirts that all say North FC um, and and there's this there's this whole taxonomy that they've created of like dismal British working class life and it's exactly the yeah, the Bazmat suit is my favorite. Yeah, of, of where it's just a guy named Barry in a hazmat suit dealing with the coronavirus, but the suit has RNHS with an R and then Bazmat on it. But like, no, yeah, some of them are quite funny, but that like the place that it's coming from is a basic kind of like uh, extending that one group of like 20 people at an EDL rally to the entire working class of England and like. And then arguing about whether or not you think they're good or not, as opposed to whether they even exist. It's like, you know, we were saying about how um, stuff from the US takes 10 years to come over here. Well, it's mm. like, it's also like that the other way around as well. So they're focusing on an idea of uh, a working class Northern person. But they maybe have come, or maybe like, not Northern necessarily, but they've maybe come across from like, originally inspired by like Green Streets, you know, that film. With, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Elijah Wood. Yeah, Elijah, Elijah Wood, Wood Elijah Wood is West Ham like a West Ham supporter. So it's like the funniest concept yeah. to me. <laughs> it like makes you want to become like a football hooligan. Like by, I remember the first time I watched that when I was like 17, I was like, yes, I'm gonna become a football hooligan. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it's like based it's like based on that, and then it's just like built upon. And they're still like like I, I get it, like I get what they're doing, but they're st- and yeah, but it's still like based on this idea of what like a working class northern, yeah. northern and it's strange it's strange because it, like that mythology comes back around again because it percolates through like American imaginations and then they have invented like this figure of Baz who like yeah. hates immigrants and you know loves fish and chips simple as and it's like yeah. what well, it's, and it's undeniable that that archetype completely exists, but it's like it's it's the displacement of saying like, oh, well, that that's what working class people are like, like, but like even the fact that they're saying like, oh, like, I mean, I interpret the North FC as being like an Arsenal thing because like even down to the accent, it's so clearly based on the South, like everything yeah. about it is like a pure Southern archetype. Um, but like, yeah, if you're going to watch Arsenal, it's 80 quid a ticket. How many working class people, like genuinely working class, do you think can afford that on a regular basis? Like, I would honestly yeah. I would honestly say that it's actually like, it's further south. It's not Arsenal. It's Gillingham. It's Gillingham FC, right? So yeah. Gilling- so Gillingham- all of these guys are landlords and they're all yes. like Yeovil or Gillingham FC, like yes. uh, season ticket holders, like, right? Yeah. So they're like, you know, so they're like team. Eight Muslims, simple as. Basically, basically, yes. Basically, yes. And these are people who like actually have signs on their door, which are like, you know, England for the English, but also love our NHS, right? It's like this very mm-hmm. strange contradiction. Um, these guys who are like, you know, buy to let landlords who own like multiple properties, but they still dress like shit and they still love fish and chips, simple as who needs curry, uh, you know, all that stuff. Like, in the in the, the the South Division Two and like lower Premier League division teams, this is what North FC is. 
You know what's really funny, and I've ju- this has just occurred to me, but it's the like the perfect example of how divorced this is from class and from material conditions, and it's that Alan Sugar is a North FC guy. <laughs> there is there is a photo, and we should make it the episode art if we can, of him like posing in his like full football kit to watch a football game. Yes. I think it was West Ham, and it's like. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> love Nagubu, love the Amstrad emailer, I hate Muslims, simple as. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like Alan Sugar is a guy who like his entire brand, and it is a like a massive multi-million pound brand, is based off of being working class, a thing <laughs> that he hasn't been in 70 years. <laughs> and so what 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 happens, right, is that as more and more of as more and more of these fronts get opened, um, as as more and more of the commentariat tries to imagine and um, basically looks at a North FC meme and then writes a column about what that meme might want, mm-hmm. um, we we sort of learn all kinds of new non-economic ways to indicate class because mass modern democracy is all about the, be, the, the in mass modern democracy the legitimate voice of the of the of the nation is always imagined to be uh, the working class and the and the competition is always to organize them. To go one way or the other, and mm. so what? And so we we get is that we say, is we now say okay, well, is class a demographic thing? Like if you're are, if you go to university, are you no longer working class? You automatically middle class. But even though Blair sent everyone to university, so is everyone under thirty five middle class now? Uh, versus yeah, exactly. You know, this is okay. So this is this was kind of like my contribution to the notes because I I'm and I think this is like an oldest time thing in Britain where there's like an ingrained thing in like a certain segment of the British public that they hate anyone they consider to be overeducated and so like anyone who like you knows words that you don't know must be in a higher class position than you even if they're making your fucking coffee right so like the barista with a philosophy degree who makes like eight pounds an hour is like middle class now and more and less authentic than the like 250 grand a year columnist who happens to have a fucking guy Ritchie accent because like they've learned about the frankfurt school or whatever the fuck it is and the fact that they like rent a shitty basement somewhere in outer london is like yeah, from the first guy mm-hmm. yeah I had this the other week because I made a I made a TikTok taking the piss out of uh, God. This is a tragic sentence. Uh, taking the <laughs> piss out of like oh like your neighbour and he's going like didn't see you clapping for Boris the other night, mate. And then someone replied to me was like, "How dare you do a parody working class accent?" I'm like, "It's an Essex accent, which is where I grew up. It's what people in my family sound like. Like I know millionaires with that accent. Like I grew up with that accent. I just educated out of it somehow. God knows yeah. why. <laughs> working class millionaires, I bet." Yeah, um, exactly. But so you have the the demographic aspect, which just which exists to shut down every every young person because of new labor policy is not authentically working class, regardless of what their relationship to capital is. You also have a geographical aspect where um, nobody in London is seen as working class, and nobody in a city is seen as working class. Because the culture, these culture wars are fought in the imaginations of people. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a heimat, it's a homeland, right? Like the labor heartlands, or like the towns, or the north. And so this is why they're always the su- even of uh, they're always the subject of soft focus liberal portraits of the Trump voter, the Brexit voter, the ex labor voter in Dudley or whatever, because it's always going somewhere else where you imagine things are different and you couldn't possibly understand. You know, we even talk and and um. And also, it's always in England. This doesn't happen in Wales or Scotland. 
or at least it happens very differently. Because in Wales and Scotland, you have devolved administrations, so you can vote mm. on stuff and like express a political, and also to a certain extent, different demographic, like through nationalism sentiment. Yeah. Like the North, what, what do you have? Fucking Andy Burnham goes on TV once a week, and he's like the ambassador for a region of like millions of people. Yeah, and mm. that, you know, this is actually what really pisses me off because I think like. I remember, um, so the Yorkshire Evening Post is like the Leeds newspaper and the, and we've got like a new editor, um, called Laura Collins and she, um, was invited, like, I think it was like the end of January or the South February was invited onto like a national, it was like, uh, uh, like the Sunday politics or some, one of those type of shows. And, um, and they were like, oh, can we talk about the, um, general election result in the North? And she was like, it's fucking February. <laughs> like, <laughs> do you not think some stuff has happened? Here? No, like, not one story. And it's when yeah. the national when the national papers remember that the North exists and like all strap on their <laughs> safari suits and go up to like sea. Then you know, and and then as the, they don't have object permanence at the Guardian, I don't think. As yeah. soon as you, as soon as it disappears from the rearview mirror, you're just like, man, that was nice. I wonder what's up there past Watford. Probably nothing. Yeah, yeah. It- Honestly, like the amount of editors I've had that have been, they've come to me and be like, yeah, yeah, we want to use you more. Like, make sure you picture us loads of stuff because we want to do more Northern stuff. And like, we, you know, like we want to get you writing for us more often. And then like, I'll pitch stuff that's like, like, I'm, you know, I've been a journalist for 10 years. Like I'm an editor myself. Like I know when stuff's good and I'm like, you know, like I'll pitch some good stuff and they're like, hmm, oh, I don't, uh, not really. I don't, uh, I don't, don't really think so. Um, and then like. <laughs> you make it more whippity. Did <laughs> <laughs> he put a big flat cap on the column? Yeah. And sometimes I literally like, oh, can you write this? And I'm like, no, because that's not what's actually like happening here. <laughs> so like, just imagining no. some editor being like, yeah, we're really interested in the red wall. You know, where all the like uh, mi- mouse who are knights live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Sometimes, it, like, I remember once I had an editor be like, oh, can you? Could you write a piece about how people are moving um, out of London because they because they they want to live somewhere where um, the transport's better? And I was like, you have literally never. <laughs> never <been born."> like, <laughs> where are they moving to? Fucking Berlin. Like, <laughs> I, I was just like. I wasn't even polite when I replied. I was just like, no, <laughs> like I'm not. Yeah. Doing just just tracking down and interviewing the one person waiting for like the one bus in Huddersfield to come round once a day and yeah. be like, yeah, no, this is great. You should yeah. have written that article though, Robin, and just completely made up shit. Like you're all getting around on the back of greyhounds and shit. That would have been <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, everyone drives the same flat cap. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, also there's there's also I think a psychological element to this in the minds of the pundits themselves that you can't deny, which is that English pundits are almost exclusively middle class and have enormous internalized anxiety and guilt because the anxiety that culture wars diffuse is not just the anxiety of working people being displaced; it's all or, or, or it's also the anxiety of the of of like the upper and middle classes being displaced as well. We're back to the uh, to the like epigram that we opened with of despising the English because you know the English laughed at you for wearing a bow tie. <laughs> and it's just like all all of these people are absolutely absolutely insane because like they the, you know they're all living the exact same lives that they purport belong to the, like this pink-haired SJW snowflake class. They're all totally insulated and safe. And so all of this criticism is just also by Biographical. 
Yeah, I mean, these days, just for wearing a bow tie, you can be locked up and thrown in jail. Well, I really think that tweet's important because I think it is a a case of the mask slipping a little bit for the actual contempt for, I don't know, working people, right? Like, they have have laughed at my bow tie, and for this, like, this has inflicted such a psychic trauma that I'm going to build an entire, like, front of politics around, elevating this, like, uh, this bow tie-hating phenomenon. Oh yeah, well you should have thought about the government making you homeless when you laughed at my bow tie. <laughs> it's, not, it's like a perception that the bow tie got laughed at as well. It's not even mm. a real laugh at, at, of the bow tie. He knows it's laughable deep down. <laughs> <laughs> he knows what they're laughing at. If you, if you like dissect that tweet, and I'll be really quick with this, so if you dissect that tweet, what you find is that yes, there is resentment, but there's also just like a deep and inherent shame, right? It's like mm. this kind of like, it's this, it's this shame that ultimately like, you know, you can have all these like big institutional degrees, you can have like your like prestigious column in the Telegraph, but like ultimately when it comes down to it, like you're a pussy, right? Like no yeah, one, like, a bow tie. no one has respect for you. <laughs> and outside of like these kind of, and you know, when we ask the question, like why are, you know, why is this kind why is the media so London centric and why is that never going to really change? Despite the fact that we have, we, we've had these conversations for decades about like the media having to move outside of London. And it's the fact that like these institutions provide cover and they provide protection for a particular class of people for whom like everyone else is sort of like positioned in a way to kind of make their columns happen. Right. Like mm. the whole world revolves Everyone's around this a like figure narrative. in a sketch. Right. Everywhere, every, mm. everything is part of a narrative. It actually leads me very well into the, the in fact, one of the other things that made me want to talk about this today, which was Nick Timothy um, trying to, and successfully participating in the culture warification of the coronavirus response. The idea oh, awesome. that wearing, wearing a mask, having safe workplaces, having safe, um, safe schools, I mean, the, all of these things now. Working down the stout pit, right? You didn't. You don't need uh, like protective equipment, right? Well, and so Nick Timothy just says uh, this is based on on something on a conversation that was happening a while ago about how we need safer um, public transport for people to get to and from work. He says, genuinely stupefied by all these metropolitan liberals who think Dudley and Walsall take people in Dudley and Walsall take the tube to work. It's like. The- uh. Genuinely stupefied by all these metropolitan liberals who think there are working class people who live in London. <laughs> or, or equally, that um, people in Dudley and Walsall wouldn't take the tube, if, uh, wouldn't take a kind of public transport if it were available. That there is this idea, and, and this is why I think the culture war in the UK is inseparable from America and why it's important. Because the preferred group of the right, these authentic, silent, working class guy who's always got a whippet and a flat cap and stuff, is actually only aesthetically English. All of his preferences are actually American. He wants to drive cars. He, he, does, he doesn't want trains. He wants more shopping malls. He wants more processed food. He doesn't want the EU messing with the, prote- with the precautionary principle. Oh, I like the chlorine in the chicken. Make sure it's not gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, literally, yes. This and like, thing, yes. This, is, this is the thing, right? It's, it's, it's a mirror of the people who have invented this, who are all like Atlanticist freaks, who are all NATO guys, who all think that Britain is just like the Greece to America's Rome. And like, as such, there has to be this like melding of Anglo American culture. Yeah, and it's why equally the sa- the villain in the culture war in the UK and the US is the same. It's mm-hmm. the pointy it's the pointy-headed professor, it's the latte sipping SJW, it's this even though as well like you know, most of the most of the culture warriors are 
were people who were working in media like fucking Toby Young or they're they're all like constantly driving going to Starbucks or whatever. It's why Corbin and Bernie were interchangeable in the cartoons of them, right? And it's why I was so mad at the American left because it's like you don't see this coming. It just like it literally happened to us on a time delay. Mm. I would also love to throw back to the fact that Britain totally is America's Rome, if only in the sense that we have got being horny for young boys on lock. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, he even even says here, you know, the the General Secretary of the Taxi Drivers Association. Um, I don't think that's a union. Whose motto is fucking hang (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Says that the push towards cycling in London is down to the inner city elite, predominantly university educated, Drinking their eco caramel coconut lattes. Eight, eight cyclists, like- <laughs> eight lattes. Love taxis. Love and gubu. Simple as. Don't like it. There's a the door. <laughs> <laughs> and right, like so. The the again. The, there's like no. We want more cars. We want more private ownership. We want less benefits. We want chlorine in our chicken because that's proper working class values. And it's like proper f- based on what. World War Two, like that. That's the only thing that, like, that's the only world that they have to go to. Is if you like, that's why there's so many of these like boomer posts of like, oh, but if 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 the kids these days were in the World War Two, then they wouldn't like being mortar because they'd be like to the mortar, they'd be like, did you just assume my gender? <laughs> when and I was growing up, the meatballs were called faggots, and there was asbestos in them. And if you don't <laughs> like it, you can fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, like, um, and that's the, and right. That's the problem. The final, the the other issue is that we ask what this is based on because you can talk about how Marx would see this as false consciousness. My whole thing about not diversion but displacement, and so, but it's all based on spite. It's hmm. just based on how on, on spite being an incredibly powerful emotion. Spite because, and shame, as Hussein yeah. has identified. Absolutely, I think that's exactly right. It is. It is just internal. It's just spite for others and shame for yourself that mm. just ends up uh, ends up turning into um, just wanting Atlanticism because ultimately you know that there are some people you've imagined that may have been snide about you momentarily in a way that you'll never know, and mm. you then devote your entire life to infuriating them, again, in a way that you'll never know because you'll never come in contact with them. And again, that's why, and this is sort of back to Robin, I think the idea that this is all externalized by London, outside London, is so crucial. And I say London, I mean London in the Southeast. Mm. You know what, actually, it really reminds me of? Um, so my, so my partner's um, brother got married to someone from the south of France. Um, and we went to their wedding. Uh, was it last summer? Yeah, last summer, I think. Um, and so she's French, and all her fr- and all her friends are from Nice, and they're all absolutely beautiful, like you know, like absolutely exceptionally beautiful, and really interesting, and really talented, and speak fluent English. You know, when you just like, oh, those pe- those people are just like better than me, like. <laughs> Yeah, and I was. Yeah, but they're also I, French, so don't worry too much. Yeah. <laughs> like a point of the wedding where I was like, "Oh, these these French people getting on my nerves," and then I realized, like, "Oh, like, like I don't like." I, I was like, "Oh, I hate I hate these French people," and then I was like, 
like there's I actually I actually don't hate the French people. I feel like vastly inferior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel I feel like Marge Simpson in the Chanel dress. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I was I was actually like, these people are just like, you know, like they're just so, you know, so beautiful, so interesting, you know, so educated, like all that kind of stuff that made me feel yeah, pricks. And that's literally like it was like, yeah, it's absolute shame. <laughs> that's very love, love Marseille, love culture, eight Muslim simple as the thing is no FC. <laughs> the culture warification of everything including the coronavirus stuff, has meant that um, the endless bickering, say, over, when, over what, what's the right time to return to work by you know, people on the right who are saying that um, ah, they're just hardy-handed sons of toil who just want to get back to it. And the people on the left being like, actually, um, they're going to... Not the left, sorry, on the center... Saying like you know just like just saying oh well I don't I don't care about them because they voted for Brexit or whatever they're missing the fact that again this is um, an article I read on the Overtake right that there are actually domestic workers being coerced into work during lockdown and no one's saying anything because uh, most of the prominent like most of the prominent voices are busy having an argument about some people that they invented. Mm. And also, it's the columnists doing it totally. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, like so, also, also with our care episode, in which, we, like, we spoke to two care workers, not very much about gender, and quite a lot about how it fucking sucks to have to go back to work in a care home. So, uh, Robin, I, I, I read this article on the on the overtake about domestic workers being coerced back into work, and it just it really struck me how how much of a fraud um, it is to talk about to just imagine what what people um what especially workers need and to just and how sort of depressingly cynical it is to just use them to further an agenda that has nothing to do with them yeah yeah and it is literally like like every conversation you see every single conversation you see doesn't involve any of the actual workers <laughs> um like you know all that stuff on twitter like when i can't remember when it was last week end of last week was it um, like that, like the like ongoing, like big old debate about, oh, is it okay to like have your cleaner come in and clean your house during lockdown? Blah blah blah. Um, and it is literally like just just fucking ask a cleaner. Like you you've literally spent you know however long, like eight hours of your own energy, and literally just yeah, just like ask a few people, and you'll have. Um. The- well, I, I find I find that uh, I think it gives my cleaner a great deal of sense of purpose and normality uh, <laughs> to to come in and clean like <laughs> and, my house. And, and moreover, my all of what I'm having to say is actually animated by the fact that I am imagining Owen Jones, and I want to imagine him mad. Yes. And oh, so yeah. I am going to devote all of my <laughs> politics to making Owen Jones mad. Yeah. yeah. Can we do um, the reading series? I love yes, the reading series. Yes, we can. This one's well, really fun. All that fun. will contribute to the coronavirus class war d- discussion is we're going to sort it out with a medical mask in the shape of a flat cap. Simple as. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this is right. This is, th- this is why I think you have to look at, at spite being so crucially important for the culture war and why it is just this... And it's pure psychology. It's just, sh- it's just shame and spite in a spiral, just making a lot of heat without a lot of noise. 
uh, with a lot of heat and a lot of noise, but without much substance. Hmm. Um, so this is, uh, as such, uh, if we're going to talk about spite, this co- uh, the coronavirus culture war, we must talk about Toby Young's article in The Spectator entitled simply, <laughs> This Lockdown May Kill Me. <laughs> Inshallah, as we like to say. <laughs> um, I have a new job, he begins, which is maintaining a website called Lockdown Skeptics. It's a compendium. <laughs> it's a blog. Yeah, he's got a new job, which is uh, blogging about how the lockdown is making him mad, about how his he has to be around his kids who all hate him. <laughs> it's uh, just a litany of complaints about his wife. Uh, it is a compendium of evidence that the lockdown is a needless act of self-harm that will almost certainly cause a greater loss of life than it prevents. Again, Toby Young, maybe he thinks that, maybe he doesn't. But he what doesn't. really matters, according to his wife, who I'm inclined to believe, he spent a week in bed thinking he was dying because he coughed once. <laughs> mm. And so, what he's what he's doing, right, is he's doing this to piss people off because he's an angry guy. He says, mm. "I set it up myself, so I can't complain." But trying to stay on top of all the news about coronavirus, monitoring the comments, and writing the daily update is taking up almost all my time. <laughs> Maybe he's oh, just a no. shit writer. <laughs> Maybe it's just because he has like a brain of a pancake. Yeah, he's just like he's holding it in in the, one of those fedoras with like the press card tucked into the band. <laughs> <laughs> On Sunday, for instance, it took me nine hours to summarize the late latest data and leaven the mix with jokes, memes, and anecdotes. Oh um, man, I love jokes, memes, and anecdotes. It's wild, Ian. Mm. Um, the result is that my diet and exercise regimen has completely gone to pot as of now. <laughs> We're allowed to take a limited exercise, <laughs> but, I, so young. but I cannot even find time to walk to the corner shop. I used to feel guilty if I did fewer than 10,000 steps a day. Now I'm lucky to manage 1,000. It's, it's so, wait, he's just uh, like okay. giving himself type 2 diabetes because like he hasn't <laughs> angered enough blue hairs who just don't want to die of coronavirus. I he love, hasn't triggered the teachers union I enough. love so much that like basically the specter of Owen Jones and some teachers is going to cause Toby Young to give himself gout. <laughs> awesome. And my intermittent fasting, whereby I didn't eat after 9 oh, p.m. Oh, brother Toby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Toby Young accidentally doing Ramadan. <laughs> uh, where I didn't eat after 9 p.m. or before 1 p.m. So he's wait, he just... inverse Ramadan. <laughs> he, did, like, so he didn't eat after 9 p.m. or before 1 p.m. So he's skipping lunch. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He is. He's not eating... Oh, sorry, no, no, no. He's skipping he's breakfast. Skipping. He's just not having a breakfast. Yeah, he's doing. A, he's doing keno body. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it, this is the kind of strength that we showed as 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 a nation during World War Two. Right, we <laughs> yeah. stormed the beaches, and we didn't even get. Uh, we didn't even get breakfast that day. Yeah, he's he's, right. getting, he's spending all of his time writing thirty thousand word blog posts saying stuff like, oh, "I can has freedom." In order to try to infuriate Owen Jones, and as a result of it, he's having to skip his full English. Oh no! Um, oh, no. Well, his, his breakfast was arrested and thrown in jail. <laughs> he, he says that the, he's he has been it, the diet he had, where he scrupulously avoided carbohydrates, has been replaced with a kind of diet I associate with a software engineer trying to debug a program before a new product launch. Just a fucking cracking sentence there, Toby. Really, <laughs> really bringing it to life. <laughs> oh man! Before before this, I mostly consumed head wax, <laughs> Domino's pizza, Coca Cola, and chocolate bars, all consumed at any time of the day or night. Except <laughs> b- between nine and one, I guess. Uh, well, no, now he's consumed all the time. 
Uh, oh, okay, I see. Because he has to do his blog, and so he's like, "No, I have to do my <laughs> blog." I'm triggering the libs, just sandwiching a Mars bar between two whole pizzas. So, what you're telling me is that Toby Young in lockdown has become a neat. Uh, predictably enough, he says, surrounded surrounded by monster energy cans. <laughs> <laughs> predictably enough, I've begun to pile out the pounds. For about two years, I managed to keep my weight down to 11 stone, but now it's crept up to 12 stone. My health has deteriorated so dramatically since I launched this website that I may actually die if the lockdown goes on much longer. He is the biggest fucking hypochondriac in the (laughs) fucking world. He's also a massive pussy. He's just like, "Uh." go for a run, Toby Young. This is literally just like user pen sideshow Bob. Like he could just solve this problem himself. Who are the people who are like his like desperate constituency who badly need Toby Young's thirty thousand words of jokes and anecdotes that he has a responsibility to that he can't like get up from the keyboard? Well, also, it's like what what is Toby Young's blog about? Like saying, hmm, maybe this lockdown is not such a good idea. It's not going to move the fucking needle. It's like, <laughs> at best, it's go- what, he's go- what he's doing is he's, I don't know, giving, like, throwing, like, scraps of red meat to people who would really, really like to, like, you know, just imagine a group of, uh, you know, purple hair baristas standing around an iPhone and wailing at the Pepe memes and, that they've seen. And it always, get, it always gets worse, right? Because, like, the closest thing to an assemblage of pink-haired SJWs that they're so afraid of is, like, us. And we're not actually triggered. We are literally not mad, but actually laughing. And that's the one thing we could do to make it worse. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, right? Like... You're you're the one who's like clogging all your arteries to maintain a blog nobody has for. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And just and just getting just getting laughed at for it. It's gonna be like the boy who cried wolf as well. Like if there is actually anyone out there who cares whether he's gonna drop dead in lockdown, like by the time he actually has something genuinely wrong with him, no one no one will give a shit. Yeah, well his wife was all his like, wife, yeah. She she she'll do a column that was like, Yeah, my fat piece of shit husband died last week. <laughs> I just step over his body like four or five times before it started smelling bad enough that I had yeah. to call somebody. At my least my like, boyfriend keeps making me eat chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Toby Toby Young is a feeder now. It's yeah. cool. Just of himself. And you know, <laughs> what, 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 what do you call the other half of a feeder? Like the one who likes eating the stuff? The feeded. Yeah. Ah, the fed, okay. Fed? The feds. The fed smoker. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And what's well, again? The the funny thing is right. Like he then goes into be talking about how all the the excess deaths are um down to this this policy and down to the the excess deaths of like comparing the running averages year on year and again just just trying to cast doubt on what is obvious. Which is that there is a pandemic going on, and that if you're going, if you go out and lick doorknobs like these fucking right wing hacks seem to say is their inalienable right, you're probably going to get sick with a very serious virus. I can't go and lick a doorknob, (laughs) just like my forefathers have always done. Love doorknobs, simple as. Hoary handed sons of doorknob. Um, (laughs) Right where where they're they're trying to obfuscate these simple facts. Again, I think purely out of spite. Yeah, um, and he he argues, you know, that ah yes, well, uh, as a result of the suspension of cancer screenings and preventative preventative programs, more years of life will have been lost than have been saved. Just assuming that this isn't an incredibly dangerous virus, assuming that like we have to have this skeleton funded NHS and so on, pointing out that in fact uh, Neil Ferguson is actually he's a hypocrite. 
He's he's a big hypocrite. I'm a lock. He doesn't even believe the lockdown. This is a lie. Uh, owned. You're owned. Your hero, Neil Ferguson, he's gonna, gets he's not gonna, so good now. He's gonna epic logic his way out of lockdown. Like yeah. this is this is absolutely like some all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy shit. Except like instead of murdering his entire family, he's just like the meltdown that he's heading for is just a gout induced stroke. Yeah. The Shining, also, except The Shining refers to the glint from the top of his bald head. <laughs> and also, for the massive majority of people that he claims to speak for, what lockdown? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, no, I mean... For all, a, lo- a lot of the people living paycheck to paycheck, what lockdown? They haven't been locked down. They're still being exposed to this thing. You know, it, it's... Whitley, this is... I, I, I am resentful that someone claimed to know better than me. And so I'm going to try to get the country to, like, you know, um, all get just go and lick the black mold in the corner of the room because we have <laughs> sick building syndrome. <laughs> well, uh, when I was in when I was in Waitrose buying uh, 904 locos and 23 double deckers, uh, the staff in there they seemed they seemed pretty pretty chipper about the whole situation actually. So. <laughs> um, and I just think that's very, very funny, right? That he's just like, yeah, I've, I've got a blog about how the government's lying to you about this thing that's obviously true. I've gotten really fat because of it. So I guess everyone should thank me. And he's, he ends and the he's just so he ends, melodramatic. He ends the piece. But if I do die of heart disease or diabetes, oh, at Christ. least my death won't be in vain. The ONS will record it as yet another <laughs> caused by this historic error of judgment. <laughs> the, uh, see, the ONS will record it as yet another caused by this historic error of judgment. So yeah, Toby Young is literally a culture warrior and he's literally ready to lay down his life on the battle lines against the <laughs> pink-haired SJWs and Neil Ferguson and, uh, and, and your, your mom who didn't let you play video games and uh, your and your wife's new husband, and <laughs> all of the people who are making you furious, Toby Young is willing to give himself four different kinds of cardiovascular disease and type two diabetes just so he can stay up at his computer moderating the Pepe comments on his uh, personal blog. Mom, I can't stop playing. It's online. <laughs> R.I.P. R.I.P. Toby Young. Let's get a 21 gummy bear salute. And, and, and all of that, let's, 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 let's just remember that all of that is a form of work and therefore labor, which means that despite all our berating on this on this middle class podcast, he is in fact a working class man. That's yeah, true. We, we, As a we worker. Need, we, need to, we need to allow space for, uh, for left wing culture war veterans to, uh, <laughs> to organize other culture war veterans. Anyway, this should be Young lost a leg in the culture war, but it was to diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, let's. Uh, I think we can we can we can begin uh, by by way of some conceptual wrapping up, right? That uh, culture wars are incredibly stupid. Uh, the it's not that the only way to win them is to um, is to fight. side with the right, yeah, because uh, that's that's stupid, and you do have to deal with them, but. Um, well, I understand that columnists aren't going to deal with them for you because columnists are all fighting a culture war that's going on inside their own crazy minds. Yeah, don't 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 concede to their psychosis. Do intersectionality instead. Don't be a class reductionist, but do tie things back to class. It's mm. relatively easy to do because you're correct. Yeah. Um, don't go, eat go 400 for Mars bars in a day because you're writing a blog. Yeah, yeah, do, yeah. Do, don't do that. Do, only do that if you're a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We are trained professionals. <laughs> um, so, 
I think uh, by way of by way of conclusion, then I want to say number one uh, to Robin. Thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. I've actually had a really fun time. I thought, honestly, I was like, I'm so tired. I was like, I'm just going to have to like listen while they all talk and just like nod along. But um, yeah, you give me loads of energy. So that's good. Hell yes. Uh, and also to say, um, don't forget to check out the overtake. If you ever want to know what's happening outside of London, don't just look at like Toby Young or Nick Timothy to tell you because they've just imagined a bunch of stuff that's consistent with all of their psychoses. Instead, check out the overtake. Yeah. Lo- um, love, love monster energy. Love double deckers. Um, love football. Ate my wife's boyfriend. Ate my wife's boyfriend. Ate quarantine. Ate <laughs> uh, gout. Simple as. <laughs> um, and uh, if you want, uh, I would say if you want to hear more, it's five bucks a month. But this is a premium episode. You've already paid your five bucks a month. You've heard them talk. all. Yeah, yeah, buy a shirt. Uh, buy a so shirt. Buy a fucking are, shirt. Yeah. So we are we're selling shirts. And also, here's another thing. Um, we've spoken about this uh, amongst ourselves. We're. You might have noticed that there's kind of more content on the Patreon recently. Um, we're doing extra discussions with different authors. We're doing. Uh, I, I'm doing the Boney Island Whitefish with Andrew from Bunta Vista, where we review every episode of season five of uh, the show Bones. Um, Nate and Milo have something coming out. Um, we're kind of doing a lot more content because in quarantine, we kind of know that everyone needs more to, to, to yeah. more you, parasocial you, relationship yeah i've eaten 412s today and made a podcast yeah yeah <laughs> and we're doing the debates and we're so on all, so. we're all gaining so much weight and as ever our theme song is here we go by ginseng uh you can hear it on spotify check it out early check it out often yeah all right later everybody later. bye, bye. bye. Thank you.